a podcast from The Conversation UK with me, Annabelle Bly. And me, Will DeFreitas. As usual, we'll be digging into some of the cool research going on in universities. And for this episode, we are taking on fuel. We'll be looking at the fuels of the future and what having lots of fuel means for a country's wealth or security. We'll also find out what the best fuel is for our bodies. Speaking of which, how's that diet of yours shaping up, Will? What did you have for breakfast today? Uh, not much. Just three fried egg sandwiches loaded with cheese, lettuce, tomatoes, fried onions and mayo, uh, two cups of coffee. Oh, and a five egg omelette, three slices of French toast topped with powdered sugar and three chocolate chip pancakes and uh, a bowl of grits, whatever that is. Right. So I'm assuming you didn't actually eat all of that as you're not throwing up here in the studio. Uh, no, fair enough. But believe it or not, champion swimmer Michael Phelps used to have all of that, everything I just listed, for breakfast alone. Yep, before the 2008 Olympics, that was his diet. 12,000 calories per day. For dinner, he used to have a whole pizza and an entire 500 gram packet of pasta. Right, so it's the kind of diet that sounds crazy to a normal person, but it makes much more sense when you're an Olympic athlete training for eight hours in the pool or gym every day. And with increasingly narrow winning margins, could the difference between gold and silver come down to diet? Our colleague Emily Brown investigated how one of the world's great athletes, famous for his chicken nugget chomping, fuels his success. Usain Bolt made history at the Rio Olympics, becoming the first athlete to win gold in the 100-metre sprint at three consecutive games. He didn't beat his world record of 9.58 seconds, but he still managed to leave his competitors for dust. To find out what sort of food it takes to fuel Bolt's Olympic efforts, I spoke with Emma Kinraid, lecturer in nutrition and dietetics at Glasgow Caledonian University. So Emma, what sort of a diet will an athlete like Usain Bolt be following during his training? Um, it's really a, a good balanced diet that Usain Bolt would be looking for, which includes plenty of carbohydrates, plenty of, of protein foods, and plenty of vitamins and minerals from fruits and vegetables. Okay, so why are carbs and protein so important, and what sort of foods can you get them from? So protein is really important to help with repairing muscles, and, and when Usain's doing his sprinting, his, um, his resistance work, he's going to be having lots and lots of little tiny damage um, in, in his muscles, and the protein's really important, especially after his exercise sessions, to help the, them to recover and to grow. So for things like eggs, meat, fish, milk, dairy products, as well as carbohydrates such as bread, potatoes, rice, pasta, uh, cereals, plenty of that to keep the energy levels up as well. Yeah, I guess an explosive event like the 100-meter sprint must take a lot of energy, especially for a world record holder like Bolt. So yeah, the world record, 9.58 seconds, is really, really quick. But when you actually look at the amount of energy that he will burn, he will only use up between about 10 to 20 calories in that race. Oh, wow. Why is that? Because it's a really short race, because it's only just about 10 seconds worth of effort in terms of, of calories, but it might deplete his whole glycogen stores. So what is glycogen exactly? How does it work? So glycogen is um, how we store our body's sources of carbohydrate. When we eat carbohydrate, it's broken down and it's stored in the muscles and in the liver as glycogen. And when somebody like Usain Bolt is training, the amount of glycogen can be used up very, very quickly um, because that is the only fuel that the body will use 
So even though Usain Bolt only burns off between 10 and 20 calories in his 100-meter sprint, most of the glycogen will be, will be used up from his muscles in that all-out effort. And certainly with a training session, if he's doing repeated sprints of, say, 20 to 50 meters, after about six or seven of, of those efforts, most of the glycogen will be depleted in his muscles. And that is why his nutrition after training is really important to start to restock that glycogen and to repair any damage that's been done. Okay, so we know that athletes need a diet with plenty of carbohydrates, protein, vitamins and minerals to fuel their training. Will that change at all in the build-up to the Games? It might change in terms of the amount of total energy that he needs to eat because when an athlete's in full training, the energy demands are, are really, really high. He is probably training one to two times every single day. So during the training phase, he will be needing a lot more energy than he would, say, in the, the few days before the Olympics, where really he's just wanting to maintain his, his weight and it's really just getting himself ready. And what sort of a meal would a sprinter like Usain Bolt be eating on the eve of a medal race? So, for example, he might choose to have rice um, with some chicken and some vegetables or, or a big bowl of pasta with some tomato-based sauce and, and vegetables, maybe some grilled chicken. He'll probably be looking to, to not have such a high-fat meal and not so much fibre the night before a big race because you don't want to upset your stomach. And he really should be having something that he's familiar with. So it wouldn't be good to go out and have a, a curry the night before a, a medal race because he, he might not know how that would react in, in his body. So something familiar, something light, low in fat, low in fibre, but high in carbohydrate and an adequate amount of protein, I would say. All right. And finally, is there any room for indulgence in this very balanced diet that you've outlined? After all, Usain Bolt was famous for binging on chicken nuggets ahead of his races in Beijing in 2008. There is a little bit of room for indulgence. I mean, when an athlete is in full training, the energy demands are so high that they can get away with more sweet treats and, and a little bit more fat than, than the general non-active person if this fried chicken was um, to be eaten every day, say, that would probably be t making him have too much, too much fat in his diet. But as an occasional treat, um, certainly if he's won a gold medal, he would, he would deserve some. I'm not sure what I find more astounding there. The fact that Usain Bolt had a diet of chicken nuggets in the build-up to his success at the Beijing Olympics. Or that he burns so few calories in the actual race. Of course, it's not just our bodies that need refuelling, our brains do too. And for that we need sleep. So what happens when we starve ourselves of sleep? What impact does it have on our ability to think and make decisions? As our society editor Gemma Ware found out, a group of scientists have carried out some rather tiring experiments to look into this. John Groger and his colleagues get their kicks out of making people stay awake until they feel tired. <sighs> really tired. And then they get them to do a series of tricky tests. John, a professor of psychology at the University of Hull, brings his subjects to a special sleep lab. They're always supervised any sign of people beginning to drop off. We would encourage them to stay awake. Everything is kept at a constant. The light is low. The temperature is controlled. They're not allowed any stimulants like caffeine or nicotine, nor allowed to go outside the lab or to shower. That could wake them up. The researchers then asked the participants to do a variety of cognitive tests. Tests of memory, attention and motor performance. It can get a bit competitive. 
Um, people are very keen to do these experiments. It's quite a challenge to stay awake. People, I think, for the most part, like to have their performance monitored. They get feedback on their performance. We do compensate them for the loss of time. The study is usually quite enjoyable to take part in. You know, when you have perhaps 10, 20 people going through the same regime at the same time, there's a bit of competitiveness. There's certainly a very good sort of social vibe in the group. But the goal isn't really to form new friends. The purpose of all these tests, which the participants do both before and while they're being deprived of sleep, is to find out more about how much of it our bodies really need. Why are we so reliant on this fuel? And what happens when we don't get enough of it, when we haven't recharged our batteries? While we're asleep, we have the opportunity to save energy uh, compared with what would happen if we were awake. So if we imagine that we have our normal fuel, like food and so forth, then our capacity to build up energy, stores of energy, or replenish stores of energy is, of course, greater when we're asleep than when we're awake simply because we use less energy when we're asleep. So it must be that that energy is preserved. John's research has looked at whether some people need to build up more of these stocks of energy than others, whether some of us are more susceptible to a lack of sleep or to what's called sleep debt. In one of his most recent studies, conducted with colleagues at the University of Surrey's Sleep Research Centre, where John is also a visiting professor, 36 people took part in a study in which they were made to live a 28-hour day over the course of six days. So while they spent roughly a third of the time asleep and two-thirds awake, as they would during a normal 24-hour day, their waking and sleeping times gradually shifted around the clock. Well, by the end of it, they will come back to exactly the same point at which they started. But midway through the protocol, they will be sleeping in the middle of the day uh, and being awake in the middle of the night. While the people taking part in the experiment all went through the same sleeping routine, many of them varied in one small way. When we selected these subjects, we did so in a particular way, in that we had equal numbers of men and women, but we also deliberately sampled people who differed in respect of one particular gene, a gene called human period three. Now, the way this is distributed in the population is that you have um, either similar numbers of copies of the, the gene signature from mom and dad, or you have different numbers of copies of the signature from mom and dad. We call the people with similar numbers of copies, either four copies or five copies, we call them homozygotes, that is four fours, four copies from mom, four copies from dad, or five copies from mom, five copies from dad. And then we looked at another group called heterozygotes who have four copies from mom or dad and five copies from dad or mom. So we have four fours, five fives, four fives. From previous experiments, John knew that people who were five fives, around 15% of the Caucasian population, were more susceptible to being kept awake. By testing them in this strange, elongated 28-hour day, he could tell whether the time of the day what's known as the circadian cycle, also had an impact on their performance in cognitive tests. The researchers found that between roughly 4am and 6am, when their subjects had been awake for around 20 or so hours, the brains of people with five genes from both parents, those five fives, began to struggle making decisions. Particular areas of the cortex, those involved... Um, with difficult tasks, with decision-making tasks, suffer particularly. 
So the effect isn't so obvious in easy tasks, but when tasks become more difficult, the five fives struggle even more, and particularly so in the early hours of the morning. But what John and his colleagues' research shows is that this isn't because of the circadian cycle. It's due to sleep debt. In other experiments, in which subjects had a week of reduced sleep before they went into the sleep lab, those five fives, who have five of that crucial gene each from mum and dad, struggled the most from this sleep debt. Probably most of us in the course of our normal waking life build up a degree of sleep debt across the week. Uh, We typically recover or pay off some of that debt at the weekend because we can sleep in later. But in studies such as these, where we carefully control the amount of sleep debt that people have, certain individuals with a particular genetic makeup are more prone to the effects of sleep debt. Perhaps the same amount of sleep debt has a greater effect on them. Maybe they build up sleep debt more quickly. We're not quite sure about that. But the effect of the debt is certainly greater on some people than it is on others. Essentially, there are certain people who are genetically more likely to suffer if they don't get enough sleep. So does this mean that there's a genetic reason why some of us should be allowed to lie in more than others? It would certainly be safer for them and for the rest of us if they did, yes. I I think that as with most of medicine and neuroscience generally, we're at a very, very exciting point because we're beginning to see relationships between things that we thought we understood, but the relationships are more complex. So in the case of the studies that I've talked about, for example, this isn't a case of people with a particular genetic vulnerability being barred from performing particular tasks. It means that if they want to perform effectively, they have to be better slept than others. There are always going to be horses for courses. And I think what this type of work and other work of the same type enables us to do is to make sure that the right horses go on the right courses. While getting enough rest might not quite be like filling up your car with petrol, it is our body and our brain's way of refueling. So do make sure you have a good night's sleep. That was Gemma Ware talking with sleep expert John Groger from the University of Hull. We switch now from fuels for the human body to the stuff that powers the world we live in. I know this is something you deal with a lot, Will. Yeah, as energy editor of The Conversation, I get a lot of press releases and pitches promising me that researchers have developed the latest superfuel. These can involve turning all sorts of weird and wonderful things into fuels. In the past year or so, we've run articles on extracting power from leftover coffee grinds, for instance, or human waste. But I think this one we're about to look at tops them all. If this was energy top trumps, this would be the magical winning card. Our science editor, Stephen Harris, talks to two scientists who are literally creating fuel from thin air. That rather high-pitched whir is the sound of a car fuelled by nothing but air. To be precise, it's air that's been cooled to almost minus 200 degrees Celsius and turned into a liquid. At a time when we're looking for new sources of energy to help wean ourselves off fossil fuels, the discovery that you can actually make fuel from air is an exciting one. But, as Jonathan Radcliffe, policy director at the University of Birmingham Energy Institute, explains, it's an idea with a surprisingly long history. So there was a liquid air engine at the turn of the, of the last century, wow. so around about 1900, 
there were uh, there was a liquid air company that was formed to to drive cars and as you'll probably know at around the same time there were electric cars being being produced as well but that they got overtaken with the you know, discovery of plentiful supplies of, of gasoline and so a lot of those technologies uh, got sort of pushed out and it wasn't until the 1970s and, and 1980s that one of our sort of homegrown inventors the garage inventor Peter Dearman you know, was thinking about it again and and started experimenting and uh, started using liquid air in a in a car that he'd converted to, to show the potential again. Liquid air doesn't work like a regular fuel that's burnt to generate heat. When the liquid is released from a high-pressure tank, it turns back into a gas and rapidly expands. You can then use this movement to power an engine or a turbine. From the exhaust, you get nothing but the air itself. This means you can use it in lots of different ways. So we can produce the liquid air uh, use it using electricity and, and then use it either to uh, generate electricity through a turbine, as you have in some of the big power stations where, you, where you're burning a gas and that turns a turbine and generates electricity. What we can do is we can put liquid air into a, into a turbine and the expansion from that turns the generator. So that, that's on the sort of large scale side of it. On the smaller scale, we can inject the liquid nitrogen into uh, essentially a, a fairly regular internal combustion engine and the expansion there produces automotive or auxiliary power for engines. Uh, and the application that's being looked at most closely at the moment is for refrigeration units on, on the back of, back of lorries. Uh, and indeed, Sainsbury's is, uh, is trialling one of these Dearman engines to, uh, to see what, what the benefits could be in terms of reducing, especially particulate emissions, or carbon dioxide around around cities. Is that because um, liquid air and then the gas that you create when you uh, when you boil it off again is very cold? So you've got cold air already, so it makes sense to look at applications where cooling is involved as well. Yeah, that's exactly right. So we've got this liquid air which is at minus two hundred degrees, and we can use that to cool a uh, container on the on the back of a lorry. And effectively, anything that's you know, maybe at minus 5 degrees looks very warm to a liquid that's minus 200 degrees. So as you use the liquid air, uh, it evaporates, cools down the goods in the vehicle, but, but still expands. And you can use that to drive a generator to power the pumps or to power some uh, electrical equipment for the, for the lorry as well. And at the same time, the, the only emission that you're getting out of that engine is, is just the air again. So, so there aren't any of the particulates that are very harmful to, to health and you know, that is such a concern around cities at the moment. Do you think we'll ever be able to pull up to a filling station and, um, uh, and, and top up with some liquid air from one of the pumps? Yeah, I, I think that's a very real prospect and Dearman is, is trialling this unit with, with Sainsbury's at the moment uh, and the, the signs are good that that will be successful and we could see the next step having some refueling depots for, for lorries and, uh, and expanding that into in a much wider network. Dr Radcliffe argues that many of the components used in liquid air systems are similar to those we already use for power generation today. But it's difficult to escape the fact that liquid air represents a fundamentally different way of producing energy than we're used to. You need special equipment just to store and transport it. You can't just run your existing car on it. 
However, there's actually a way of making more traditional carbon-based fuels from air as well. Specifically, you can capture the carbon dioxide that's in the air that's been emitted by all those fossil fuels we've been burning for the last 200 years. To get at the carbon dioxide, you need to react the air with another chemical. For example, you can bubble it through a liquid chemical solvent called monoethanolamine, or MEA. But that's not as easy as it sounds. Scientists like Professor Peter Styring, director of the UK Centre for Carbon Dioxide Utilisation at the University of Sheffield, are searching for a more efficient way of extracting CO2 from the air. Yeah, so currently solutions of MEA in water are used. So 30% MEA, 70% water. Uh, and they, they allow the chemical reaction to take place, which in effect sucks the CO2 out of the atmosphere or the stream. Uh, so yes, it's bubbling CO2 or bubbling a flue gas containing CO2 or air through a liquid. Now, the research at the moment that is showing the best promise is replacing the liquid with a solid and doing a solid gas absorption. Uh, and be- because you can do this at much lower temperatures, it allows you to do it mu- much more environmentally and much more economically. Then, of course, you need more chemical reactions to turn this captured carbon into fuel. And all of this needs a lot of energy. But this could actually be a way to make CO2 capture cost-effective because it would let us store surplus renewable energy. It's all about maximising the renewable energy that we have. Using energy at a time when we don't need it and then storing it for a time when we do need it. And it's especially important important in places like Scandinavia, where there's a lot of renewable energy available, especially over the summer, but a high need for fuels in the winter. So it's balancing out producing the fuels in summer and using it on a seasonal cycle. You could say it's energy inefficient, which you know, it probably is using current uh, catalysts. But it's much more efficient than trying to store electrical energy in a battery over seasons. And how are we doing so far? Can we make enough fuel to power a vehicle, say? It depends on the size of the vehicle, really. <laughs> um, we're hosting the, the 14th International Conference on Carbon Dioxide Utilisation in Sheffield this September. Uh, and one of my postdocs on the project that we're working on, uh, the 4CU project, is looking to produce a fuel that, uh, again, he can power a small bike on, maybe a small scooter, Uh, that we can demonstrate at the conference. So a real example of taking the CO2 and and producing a fuel from it. If we can make petrol, does that mean one day we could use this process to to power all our cars and vehicles with? Maybe we won't need electric vehicles as much as perhaps we think we do. Yeah, I, I don't think that we're looking necessarily to power all vehicles using CO2 derived fuels. If, if you can power them using electricity, then that is much more efficient. The problem comes when you get into electric vehicles for long-haul transport because you don't have the range with the battery and you don't have sufficient power. For a 3,000-kilometer journey using uh, an articulated lorry, it used just under one kilogram of diesel fuel to do that journey. If you were to do that with a lithium-ion battery, the battery would be 52 tons in itself and would take up one uh, unit of the of the trailer. So that that's not going to be efficient. So we're looking at using those fuels 
to power vehicles for longer distances and for aviation. Given that producing enough fuel from air to power a scooter is currently an impressive feat, it's probably going to be a long time before we see planes powered by CO2 fuels. But Professor Staring is confident it will happen if oil becomes expensive again. The process will become viable if crude oil reaches around $120 a barrel, which is, again, far from where we are now, but it's not unrealistic because they have reached those values in the past. So it's all dependent on market forces. It's dependent on developing new technologies. Technologies are developing at a very, very fast rate. So I think within the next 10 years, we'll see more and more synthetic fuels derived from CO2 entering the market. So these cool new forms of energy are out there. The technology exists. But as we just heard there from the University of Sheffield's Peter Styring, market forces still dominate. That's why when most of us hear the word fuel, we think of the stuff that comes out of the ground. Coal, gas and oil. It's these fossil fuels that we still mostly use to power our cars and heat our homes. In fact, they fuel most of the world and cause a lot of trouble for a lot of countries. We decided to take a look at just one of these countries. Nigeria, Africa's largest oil producer, has spent decades trying to retain control of its vast fuel reserves, and it is still struggling today. Andrew Nocti, one of the conversation's politics editors, drilled down into what life is like in the oil-rich Niger Delta. Nigeria is one of Africa's biggest economies, and it relies on oil and gas for more than a third of its GDP. Most of what it produces comes from the Niger Delta, a massive coastal area of about 70,000 square kilometres. For comparison, that's bigger than the entire island of Sri Lanka. The delta can produce as many as 2.5 million barrels of oil on a good day, but it's a complicated place with some pretty intense problems. It's notoriously insecure and corrupt. Sabotage, theft and piracy there cost the country billions of dollars a year. To find out what's going on and how it got this bad, I spoke to Lisa Otto from Coventry University. She studies piracy and maritime crime. She says the situation today began to develop back in the turbulent 1970s. This has become a particularly pointed issue over the last few years, but you can trace back the linkages of maritime crime to the exploitation of commercial oil in Nigeria in the 1970s. So it really dates back yeah, a good 40 years. Initially, what was happening is that when you had this commercial exploitation of oil, you were seeing a concomitant uh, boom in shipping traffic that the ports in the region, and particularly in Nigeria, didn't necessarily have the capacity to accommodate. And for that reason, you were having vessels that were waiting for birth for several weeks at a time, and they would be waiting not very far offshore. You had vessels that were sitting ducks and opportunistic locals who had access to a fishing boat, perhaps, would attack these these vessels We've been able to trace a trend over this 40-year period that shows the crime becoming ever more sophisticated and seeing different forms of crime taking place. As the deltas developed, the illicit economy that taps its resources has become much more sophisticated and much more lucrative too. There's certainly a large illicit oil economy, and this is why 
we see in the media a lot of talk around the issue of petro-piracy, that is piracy that's directed specifically toward oil theft. And we're seeing that taking place at sea, targeting vessels that are specifically carrying petroleum cargoes, as well as at offshore installations. But we're seeing also oil theft that's taking place on land. And so there certainly is an illicit economy around oil. Uh, There's a domestic market for this also because Nigeria doesn't have a great refining capacity. And so for this reason, it actually imports the majority of uh, petroleum products for its domestic demands. That obviously drives up prices for locals and creates a black market demand. One of the biggest problems is what's called oil bunkering. Lisa explains. So oil bunkering is basically the theft of oil from pipelines onshore. So this takes place within the riverine Niger Delta. And often this happens in the form of hot tapping where pipes are pierced or wells are accessed and the oil can then be kind of siphoned off from there. Local communities are paid off because the oil that's being bunkered comes from the area that they live in. There you have host and passage communities. So the host communities would be the communities in the vicinity of where the oil is being bunkered at a particular point. And then passage communities are those communities within the riverine delta through which the vessel carrying this oil will have to travel to get it to where it needs to go. But even though the illicit economy in the delta is very sophisticated, many of the people involved in it are just Nigerians trying to make a living. The foot soldiers, i.e. the people who are carrying out the crimes, they belong to unions in order to get jobs performing these activities. So an average local, for example, who has some seafaring skills, who might have had access to a vessel or a weapon, who has obviously local knowledge in a very complex geography, um, these people are able to then offer those skills, joining a union and will then get given a task. You have people who on one day might be an oil bunker, on another day might kidnap someone for ransom, and on a third day might be what we would consider traditional pirates. Any problem this complex is incredibly difficult to solve, and most of Nigeria's efforts to deal with the Delta have failed to make much impact. Theft, violence and piracy are costing the country up to a billion US dollars a month. Some estimates say that a third of the Delta's oil output is lost to crime. So why is it proving so hard to change things? I know that this sounds like the kind of typical refrain regarding African challenges, but a big problem has been the problem of corruption. Certainly, if you imagine what's happening to 12 billion US dollars a year, um, when you think of where that money goes to, it's obviously a great incentive for people to to continue to sustain this kind of industry. So corruption is a big problem, and it's certainly been reported in Nigeria to go up to the very top. There have been huge issues of corruption around um, the state's petroleum agency, and those have come out in the media huge, huge sums of money that have been going missing. And then, of course, you've got the security forces um, who are basically also benefiting because they're being bribed and being paid off. And it exists in such an organized and sophisticated manner that, for example, the Navy is paid off at particular rates. So they're paid off per barrel. In 2015, Nigeria elected a new president, Muhammadu Buhari, on a strong anti-corruption platform. 
But as Lisa says, he's had other things on his plate too. Boko Haram has been a huge challenge and they have been causing a major upheaval in the northeastern region of the country. Um, so I think for that reason, whilst Buhari has been wanting to tackle corruption and has, for example, um, issued investigations into particular high-profile people who are involved in the oil industry, um, I don't think you've seen this kind of carrying over in terms of concrete, tangible benefits as yet. And probably we need a little bit more time to see how he's able, how his government is able to really turn things around. As of mid-2016, things aren't looking good. Militant groups in the Delta have started attacking plants and pipelines again. A new group, calling itself the Niger Delta Avengers, has joined the fray, saying that not enough of the money from the Delta's fuel resources goes to people who live there. To try and curb the attacks, the government has restarted a programme that pays tens of thousands of militants $200 a month as an incentive to stay out of trouble. But a year after President Buhari came into office promising to fight corruption, the government seems no closer to getting the Delta under control. That was Andrew Nocte speaking with Coventry University's Lisa Otto. That's it for this podcast all about fuel. Next month, Will and I will be back with more stories and insights from the world of academia. As ever, a big shout-out to the journalism department at City University for letting us use their studios. This episode of The Ant Hill was produced by Gemma Ware and my co-host, Annabelle Bly. The Ant Hill is brought to you by The Conversation UK. We are a news analysis website funded by UK universities and research bodies. Check us out at theconversation.com or follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks to all the academics who spoke to us and thanks to you for listening in. Goodbye. Goodbye.